Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the sixth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about public opinion polling. Is it good for democracy? We'll talk about whether modern polling techniques have been good for democracy. Is polling a reflection of public opinion? Is it shaping public opinion? Or is it distorting public opinion? Who is it helping? And how can we be responsible consumers of polling information? This show was pre-recorded on June 12th. We're not taking any listener calls at this time. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Ashley Koning is the Assistant Research Professor and Director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Welcome, Ashley. So pleased to have you join us. Thank you so much, Anne. Great to be here. And Dan Shea is Chair and Professor of Government at Colby College. With Nick Jacobs, he is co-author of the new book coming out in November, The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America from Columbia University Press. We're looking forward to that. Thank you, Dan. Welcome. Hi, Ann. Glad to be here. So let's get started. I want to put it to you first, Dan. Some of us were surprised, to say the least, by the outcome of the 2016 presidential election in the face of the pre-election polling seven years later, we still haven't quite figured it out. And now here comes another presidential election. I guess there are three questions buried in here. Are the polls any good? How can they get it so wrong? Are polling techniques keeping up with how people interact, cell phones, social media, et cetera? And do people understand what polls are saying? I mean, some people thought, you know, 60-40, Trump was gonna lose, 60-40, that maybe not what it was actually saying. But let's start with that first one. Do the polls work and how are they evolving in the 21st century? Well, that's a lot, Anne. That's okay. Coming <laughs> right at us. That's uh, yes, polls work. They actually do. I'm going to come out and just say that. I don't know where Ashley's going to end up, but I'm going to, I'm going to defend polls. I'm going to say that they're good for democracy, that there are problems um, and some of those problems, uh, I think, are getting worse, particularly sampling bias, which we'll get to trying to figure out who from our from our list is more likely to turn out. That's the that's the real snag of election polling is going from what people say over the phone to projecting turnout. So, the, yeah, let's go back to uh, 2016. So 2016 uh, was a surprise. It, I think it's fair to say that the pollsters got it wrong, got it wrong-ish, I would say. Remember, the polls, the average of the polls had Hillary Clinton up by about five percentage points the weekend before the election. On election day, she loses the, the race, of course, but she actually wins the popular vote by nearly three million voters. So in the end, they were off by a couple percentage points, but they were pretty close, really, um, within a few within a few points. Now, it, it is true, again, that polling has 
some problems. And I'm sure we'll actually and we'll get to some of these as well. But I don't think we should throw the baby uh, out with the bathwater on all our polling, particularly when we start uh, talking about polling or on issues and positions and policy questions. Horse race polls are a little bit different. You know, who's ahead, who's behind, by how much. But polling does serve important democratic functions, I'll, I'll get to. Well, Ashley, why don't you respond to that first question? Do they work? And how could we have been so blindsided? Yeah, I think Dan and I are on the same team, which is a great way to start out the conversation. You know, I, I think a lot of the issue comes down to, and unfortunately, this is extremely difficult to resolve. It comes down to education of what polls are and what they're meant to be used for and, and what they should and should not do. And, you know, we, because of the 24-7 news cycle, because of the the thrill and, and sensationalization of the horse race, we invest so much in these horse race pre-election polls when that's really not their intended function. I mean, polls are not meant to predict. They're not predictive tools. They're meant to tell us what's happening in a snapshot in time when we're talking to respondents. And we know that opinions and behaviors and practices can easily change from the time somebody is interviewed until you know the actual moment. And, and as Dan pointed out, there is such an integral role that polls play in the democratic, small d democratic process. But when we look at them and we only focus on who's ahead and who's behind without paying attention to the sample size or the margin of error or the way in which the poll was conducted um, or who we're taking as a likely voter, it really damages what polls are meant to be. And unfortunately, it's, it's a very hard thing to explain to polls the media and the public in terms of how to be a good poll consumer and, and a good interpreter of polls. Um, you know, and we've been deluged, especially with in recent election cycles with a number of kind of junkier, not as credible polls that have really been mixing things up. And in 2016, you know, pollsters said, oh, well, the problem's education. Let's add education into our uh, weighting of the data and, and everything will magically be better. And you know, then we we saw problems kind of rear its head in 2020 again. And, and now, you know, it's the issue of, okay, maybe we're getting the quantity that we need when we talk to people, but not the quality or the type of people. Maybe we're missing particular Trump voters that are not, you know, emerging. And, and the other thing is, I think we need to look at Trump is, is the big million dollar question when it comes to polling and his presence at the top of the ballot and what that's been doing to polling, because we know that in 2018 and even 2022, polling was pretty solid uh, when we look at the, the um, you know, when we measure polling against the ballot box in those election cycles. And so it's definitely something that has evolved within this new Trump era since 2016 that, you know, we there have always been issues and challenges and problems, especially with the advent of new technologies in the polling world. Um, but but the Trump candidacy and, and the Trump campaigns have certainly brought that more to light in terms of the urgency and the ability for, you know, polls to, to be significantly affected. So I, I think there's there's a lot going on. I think education of, of the public and media and even politicians is a big thing. Unfortunately, you know, that's a very kind of rose colored glasses view. If only we understood what polls were meant to do and how 51 versus 49% doesn't necessarily mean that 51% candidate is in the lead. And, and finally, I think we also need to take a look 
at pre-election polling within states, and this becomes very difficult, and I say this as a statewide pollster myself, many of those statewide polls are underfunded. Uh, they're, they're perhaps, some of them are not done up to the gold standard of what's considered the gold standard of polling. It's very, very difficult to conduct polls, and then even more so on a statewide level, but really these statewide polls are the ones that mimic the electoral college. And as Dan pointed out, if we're looking at the popular vote, then you know the, the, the error that we saw in national polling versus the popular vote in 2016 was not as great as what we saw in terms of the historic error on the statewide level. But unfortunately, or fortunately, for better or worse, statewide polling is a much better indicator of where the electoral college is going to go. So I think also understanding the relationship between the types of polls and how our electoral process works is, is integral to understanding how to use pre-election polls as well. And also, we don't know who we're talking to yet. I mean, people who turn out on election day, there's no secret formula to knowing who is actually going to turn out. Um, it's we are, we are making a best guess as a pollster in terms of who we think will be a likely voter, and that changes from election cycle to election cycle. I have so many questions to follow up on from what you said, Ashley. First, and I don't know, Dan, if you want to take a stab at this, I know you probably can't tell me what Ashley meant, but, you know, talking about why Trump has been such a wild card in this scenario, why is that? I mean, is it because there's so much at risk or, or at stake, or is it because his voters are a special kind of voter? I mean, why is Trump mixing this world up that way, Dan? Yes, I think it has to do with our projections of likely voters. I think that's what's changed, right? So mm -hmm. we don't, if you're doing polling to try to figure out what's going to happen in an election, you want to match your sample with the types of people that are likely to come out on election day. You know, in that instance, I think pollsters should care about non-voters and, and many in many of their of their work, much of their work. But in election stuff, we're interested in who's going to turn out. So we have to make this assessment of the, the likely voter. And that's shifted. There are people turning out for Donald Trump that um, we wouldn't have imagined coming out in the numbers that they're coming out in previous years. One of the things that he has done is mobilized a group of people that were often on the sidelines. No, I don't think it's a it's a coincidence at all that the 2020 election saw a turnout as high as we've seen in 100 years. And part of that has to do with the cross-cutting issues that are dividing the American public. And part of that has to do with uh, Trump mobilizing a group of pollsters. I don't think have got their arms around the likely voter model in, in the Trump era. That's my best guess. I don't know if you want to add to that, Ashley, but the other question I wanted to follow up with you on is when you said people don't understand what it means when the poll says 51-49, and I wish you'd dig into that a little bit more, too. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think just to touch upon what Dan just said, I think we're unfortunately in an era where uh, polls have become yet another distrusted institution, political institution. You know, back in the olden days, you you hear from pollsters, they would get a 90, 80% response rate, and they would think that was pretty darn good. And, and nowadays, we're lucky if we get the low single digits. Um, and, and we can even talk about later, 
you know, why, why it still works in spite of that. But, you know, obviously it's taking a lot more time and a lot more money to conduct polls, given that 5% or less of people are answering on average across the industry. And so it becomes extremely difficult to do. Uh, getting to the 51%, 49% thing, you know, it, it becomes very difficult when we talk about pre-election polling. If, if we're talking about a single support opposed number and we say, you know, 50% support this initiative with a margin of error of plus or minus three, all of us can do the simple math. You know, that means that if we talk to everybody in the population, which is impractical, um, if not impossible and, and, you know, prohibitively expensive. But say we talk to everybody in the population because of the magic of statistics, we would know that anywhere from 47% to 53% might actually think that if we talk to everyone in the population and, and if we, that would be the range in which our results would fall if we kept taking a sample of the same population and asking the same question over and over and over again. When we're dealing with two candidates in a head-to-head, -head, how we interpret the margin of error becomes a little different because we're actually talking about the margin of error on each one of those numbers. These numbers aren't a set in stone, black and white number that we see on a page that everybody takes at face value as, as gospel. These numbers are representative of of the range of probability that we're dealing with for each of these candidates. So that 51% candidate may really be at 48. They may really be at 54. That 49% candidate may be at 52. They may really be at 46. And so that's what we have to take into account. So in 2016, when everyone said, well, Clinton consistently is at 51% in every poll or, you know, 50%, 51, 52, whatever, we weren't taking into account the margin of error and interpreting it as this is a race that is too close to call. If she were at 58%, we're talking about a different story. And in fact, we saw that play out with Biden in 2020. He had these huge, healthy single digit leads to double digit leads at some point over Trump. And then obviously his actual win was much smaller, but we would be confident in saying that it looks like he's going to succeed because of that healthy lead that he did have that was outside of the margin of error. So when we have these close races, just because somebody's ahead by a point or two, even if it's consistently, doesn't mean they're going to win. Just because somebody is predicted to have a 99% chance of winning, doesn't mean somebody isn't going, is going to win necessarily. I always like to equate it to um, the weather report, right? you see a chance of rain in the forecast, it's up to you whether or not you're bringing your umbrella that day. Um, you know, it, for you, it may depend on how severe that threat of rain is. You know, for me, I'm gonna pop that umbrella in my bag, even if it's a 10 or a 20% chance. So the, the whole point of these probabilistic gauges that we see in the news, in terms of the chances of a candidate winning, or when we're talking about, oh, this person has been consistently ahead, that doesn't take into account the full picture of what we need to recognize and the inherent probability and, and sometimes unpredictability of these events. And I mean, surveying is based on statistics. And so it is, it is only natural that sometimes that 1% happens, mm -hmm. that sometimes that margin of error is correct. 
You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is public opinion polling. Is it good for democracy? Our guests this afternoon are Dan Shea, Chair and Professor of Government at Colby College, and Ashley Koning, Assistant Research Professor and Director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. So, like, how are they doing it? You know, social media, people don't answer their phone, used to get 80%, now you only get 5%. Dan, how are pollsters evolving techniques to deal with the fact? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to state something um, that's going to be, I'm not sure Ashley's going to Ashley's going to agree with. I think phone polling is is about dead. Um, it is it is it is pretty much over. I mean, in order to get uh, enough people that will answer their phones and to get the type of people, get a balanced group of people, becomes so difficult and so cost prohibitive that that it's really moving out. It's fading out really quickly. What's happening, at least in the work we're doing, is it's moving online. And what it is is that there are millions of Americans now that are signing up to be part of panels, of survey panels for different organizations. And their incentive for doing that is quite honestly often monetary. They'll get uh, some um, a, a break on magazine subscriptions or get a few dollars here and there. And, and what happens is that pollsters will turn to this panel, these panels of of uh, online uh, Americans to answer questions. And it's the job of the pollster then to balance the demographics of the people that are answering these online polls with what they're after. For example, there may be more people over 50 on online polls than there are in your in your congressional district or state. And it's the job of the pollster to, to, to balance that out and to use techniques to grab other people in demographic groups that you need more of. There's ways to incentivize different groups to get online and answer them. There are some problems with online polling, but um, scholars have been using them for a long time. Um, a lot of media organizations, YouGov, uh, we all read YouGov polls. Those are online panel polls. I'm, I'm anxious to hear what what Ashley thinks about about the uh, whether or not uh, phoning is is on life support or it is completely extinct. Go ahead, Ashley. Sure, I, I like uh, I like Dan's analogies. I, you know, I would say that phone phones are probably on life support, but I, I would give. I mean, certainly, but I would give the caveat that I think phone only is dead i would say phones maybe still have a place in some capacity in the future of polling and i think this is something the industry is still grappling with in fact we just had our our national conference the other month um where we all talk about this kind of stuff across the industry and i think really the big emerging trend now uh as dan mentioned of course yes uh online samples online panels and we can talk about those in a second um but i would say the the big emerging trend is a lot of mixed mode design. And so that meaning we're taking different types of survey modalities, combining calling with things like texting, 
potentially postal mail has made a big comeback using samples that are based on home addresses instead of phone numbers. All of these things combined, including combining probability and non-probability based online panels to get better coverage of the populations under study. I would say, you know, as Dan alluded to, the issue, and, and obviously cash is king, incentives are a really big deal now to making sure that respondents respond. But, you know, a lot of the the other edge of the sword with these online panels is we're looking at people who become professional survey takers. And so not not only that on the national scale, but on the statewide scale, it's simply not built. So we've seen a lot of national surveys that have been done from probability-based and non-probability-based panels, but the probability-based panels, which are now the gold standard in this new era, meaning that that we can relay and generalize back results to the population, that is not a thing at the statewide level. And so this hooks into what I said previously, if we aren't getting a good barometer of statewide sentiment, um, which is not only important for, for local and statewide everyday politics, but especially when we're talking about election cycles, when statewide polls are the best comparison to the electoral college, then we have a real problem. So if, if panels become the only way that we can, you know, survey people, then we really need a panel for every state. And that is an immense, immense cost to, to take on. You know, I, I had mentioned uh, kind of the, the mixed mode nature. So, you know, now in accordance with regulations with the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, a lot of call centers have been texting, whether a, a text back and forth survey or texting a link out, you know, it just becomes problematic because a lot of campaigns are also doing these same techniques. And so people are being deluged, especially in battleground states with mail and text messages and this and that. And obviously every mode has pros and cons. I mean, you do something by postal mail, that's going to take a lot longer than doing something by text message or phone calling, you know, but some people may not want to talk to somebody. Some people may much rather want to fill out a brochure or a survey packet and send it back. So, you know, I, I think the new era of polling is trying to figure out the the best blend of all of these different modes to reach the, the largest number of people and to reduce coverage error as much as possible. Well, and Dan, I mean, Ashley is is raising a question in my mind about the reliability of the polls in horse racing. And we're going to talk in a minute about the difference between horse racing and issue horse race polls and issue polls. But, you know, if the really important polls are being done at the state level and the state polling organizations aren't funded to do state of the art yeah. techniques, how reliable is this really? And where is the money to do this kind of polling? I mean, who is doing the good stuff? Well, we ran into that problem precisely, right? So y'all remember that we uh, did a bunch of polls around the um, 2020 election. We spent a lot of time uh, trying to sort out um, the 2018 election. Uh, we did a bunch of survey work on Sarah Gideon and Susan Collins in the state of Maine. And uh, Ashley's right. We, we were able to pull together a fairly decent size uh, group of potential respondents in a panel by using a panel aggregation service. It was Lucid that pulled together respondents from many different panels. But even so, Maine's pretty small, so we didn't have that many. 
So we did use a, a mixed methods approach. About a third of our respondents were over the phone and two thirds were online. That was a, an expensive endeavor. I can tell you the online stuff can be very, very expensive. Sometimes research organizations and universities and colleges will pay for this polling. Uh, the media is obviously very interested in this in this stuff. We were fortunate enough to get to get some nice grants from the from Colby from our administration to do this work, and it was linked to our to our research on uh, rural voters. But it, you, you raise a good point at the state level when panels are incomplete when you don't have large panels, it becomes very difficult to get an accurate picture. And Ashley's right. Some some organizations are moving towards creating panels. I think I think the New Hampshire University of New Hampshire Polling Center is working hard to create a panel for uh, New England. I think it's more than New Hampshire, but you've got to recruit them, and it can take years to get enough because you you can't just end with a few thousand. You need many thousands so that you can randomly grab different ones at different times. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna. Just change the subject a little bit. We've talked about the difference between horse race polling and issue polling. And we have this question about who's Zooming who. Like, do the polls reflect what people think? Do reading the polls change what people think? Do polling results change people's behavior? I mean, I think we know that maybe it changed the behavior of James Comey in the 2016 election. But what is the effect of this polling on the consuming public in terms of leading and shaping versus reflecting public opinion. And then I just definitely want to talk sometime in here about the horse race versus the issue poll and the different roles they may play in the dem in democratic discourse. So I don't know which angle of that you'd like to take first, Ashley, but pick one and. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, those are both great questions. I would say, um, let me let me work backwards because this is always my my soapbox. You know, yeah. if we lose trust in the in the pre-election polling process and we are using it for the wrong intent. Like I said, if we're using it as some crystal ball of of predicting what will happen on election day and and thinking that the numbers we see are definitive, um, then we really lose the value of polling, especially when it becomes about polling the general public and, and polling everyday issues that never get their chance at the ballot box. But Again, isn't that sort of the way the media feeds it to us? Uh, how so? How do you mean? With the horse race polling, like it, as a predictive thing. That's the way oh, I... they, do, they do. And I mean, that's that's the that's the problem with with needing to educate the media and, and educating the public how to understand polling nobody seems to understand the process or understand it to some extent and and by in all fairness certain uh media outlets have taken great strides especially those who have their own polling units in explaining how it's done explaining what things mean having data journalism uh blogs and offshoots to really make sure that it's understood but you know we're all we're all human beings who are cognitively overloaded with tons of elections and obviously other things to worry about in life other than politics and election cycles. And so it becomes very difficult for the average voter to process all this and then to try to become a consumer of understanding the polls. So if the media are painting the picture of candidate X at 51% is ahead, they're going to win. Of course, that's how people are going to interpret it. And so I think it does a real disservice to what 
the the real mission, the everyday mission of polling is because pre-election polls, like we talked about, pre-election polls are looking at a population that is not yet created. We have no clue who's going to turn out on election day. People are predicting this likely voter population. There is no secret sauce to predicting them or to determining who they are. And so we're we're projecting an unknown population. When we're talking about issue polling, we know exactly who the public is. It's the public, bottom line. It's the general public trying to find out from the general public or if you want registered voters, we know who these people are. And so, you know, there are plenty of issues and we've seen this over the years when it comes to things like same-sex marriage um, that sometimes never get their day at the ballot box. And so issue polling becomes absolutely essential to understanding where public opinion is um, and, and clearly has, you know, effects on legislation and all the way up through the Supreme Court. And I think, you know, the bad rap that pre-election gives to polling in general when they are two very different entities, I think really does a disservice to the the regular off-cycle issue polling that is arguably sometimes even more important than really trying to understand this horse race. The, the, the pre-election polling really is much better served by being some type of polling that looks at the results in hindsight. But of course, with that 24-7 news cycle, everybody kind of needs to fill that news hole and wants to know who's ahead and who's behind. It's, it's, yep. And not that it's necessarily a bad thing, but you know, I, I think it's trying to, the, the need to understand the tool better. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Ashley Koning, Assistant Research Professor and Director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and Dan Shea, Chair and Professor of Government at Colby College. Dan, I want to, you know, lob this over to you and to reflect a little bit on the public interest purpose, the different public interest purposes that can be served by issue polling versus pre-election polling. And using, you know, the um, sort of line that Ashley start, started down for us, I mean, we know, like the abortion question right now, like we know, right, where most American people are because of that, which it seems like a different public interest purpose than who's likely to win the next election. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. And one item that I would just back up real quick, and that is that we have to remember that horse race polling are a snapshot in time. So in the 2020 race, we had uh, Sarah Gideon essentially tied with Susan Collins. And in the end, of course, Susan Collins won. But the, our last poll was about a week out before election. So a lot, a lot happened in Maine. You know, you might recall that was the Bill Green ads came out and um, it, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on in the last week of the election. So one of the downsides of, of election polling is this snapshot in time, which isn't necessarily the same when it comes to off cycle or position issue position polling. Right. So attitudes on abortion don't don't change like that. They don't change because of a of a new uh, campaign ad or so. Well, and so some of us are, have been around long enough to remember the Libby Mitchell gubernatorial campaign where polling changed people's behavior, right? Yes, yes, I, I, I know that's true. And um, it can be a powerful fundraising tool as well. We know that to be true, right? So polls that put candidates closer than they were expected to be can be really powerful 
drivers of money, which can lead to more advertisements, which can change public opinion, can change um, the, the the position of the candidate. So that it can have a snowball effect. We know that to be true. So is this a good dynamic or what? <laughs> well, you were asking about sort of off-cycle position polling. I, I do think polling serves a very important role in helping our leaders, helping the elite understand public opinion. Without public opinion polling, it's very difficult to get our arms around where the public is on issues. Like we, well, you know, the will of the people, the will of the people isn't necessarily expressed through elections, for example. We don't really know how to interpret uh, uh, the elections. Did Susan Collins win because her positions were right or because she's a Mainer and we, you know, we like Susan Collins, we like her personally. So it, it's hard to know. We used to be that uh, we could gauge public opinion by I don't know, letters to the editor or the size of rallies, but there are all sorts of built-in bias there. Public opinion polling gives us a good sense of where the public is, and leaders should know that. It can identify trends. It can help us uh, reveal information to, to leaders, to the public that, that wasn't there. It becomes very, very powerful. And I, I think just that you, you raise the abortion issue, you know, we could we could take a look at some of these these places where the, the legislatures are moving on abortion restrictions, even though public opinion polling suggests that the public doesn't want them to do that at all. Right. So we we can see this. We can see that the legislature is changing something because they have activists. They've got people pushing them hard. But the broader public exposed to us through polling would have it otherwise. So once in a while, those two will sort of the rubber will hit the road, say, on the legislature moving in one way and referenda changing what they're doing, as we saw, for example, in Kansas. But I think that's just a good example, this, this struggle over the abortion question and how important uh, polling can be in a democracy. So comment on that, Ashley. I know that these issue polls can give voice to public opinion that may not have power or may not have an outlet otherwise. So I can sort of see the Democrat, democratic purpose, the public interest purpose in that. And I, I think you've been commenting right along that if horse race polling diminishes public trust in polling in general, that would be a loss. To the public interest. Yeah, I mean, that would be a real loss. And Dan had mentioned letters to the editor, but really at the end of the day, public policy, public opinion polling, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the day, this this is the the truest barometer we have and and the kind of the best form of political participation we have in terms of representation. I mean, if we go back to the literature on uh, resources needed to participate in the political process. I mean, if you're donating money, you need to have some sort of financial comfort or ability to do so. If you're engaging in a protest or rally or even writing to the editor, you know, or your member of Congress, you need the time in order to do that, especially going to a rally or protest, you may not be able to get off of work. There are so many participatory acts that become incredibly difficult to participate in without the resources of time, money, and education. 
you know, polling is talking to you or ideally someone like you with your opinions and representing you in a in a representative fashion in the way in which you are in the population. And polling typically asks for like 15 minutes of your time and sometimes even incentivizes you to participate. And it is it is the most representative form of any of those activities. You don't have to have money to do it. The only issue is we have to get that survey to you somehow. Um, and you have to have a few minutes, a few moments of your time to spare. But it it ideally, and again, this is you know a very rose-colored view, but I, I get to be a hopeless romantic about polling, much like George Gallup was, you know, when he said polling makes for a true democracy because polling connects the people with the policymakers, and that's the whole point of our small d democratic process. And it connects them in a representative way. If you don't have time to write that letter, if you don't have time to go to that protest, um, your voice can still be heard. So, you know, ideally, and, and there are a whole bunch of problems um, with polls that we can talk about if we have time in terms of representation. But I mean, ideally, polls are meant to represent you and everyone in the same proportion to which they are in the population. And I think that's something, even as blunt of an instrument as they may be, I think that's something we can't forget. And, and when it comes to all of this poll bashing and thinking that polls are dead or overused and whatnot, I think, you know, the the implications of, of uh, politicizing polling or, um, you know, just dis, distrust in polling, I think the implications are really dire because it really is such an integral part of our political process. Dana, sort of talking about that, apart from the way in which the, the media present these, are there pollsters that can use these techniques for strategic purpose, like to push a particular agenda? Like, is there an angle to some of these? Like, are there pollsters that are not actually practicing in the public interest, but who are practicing for a special interest? Watch out for those. Yeah. Well, you're referring to push polls, right? Okay. And I don't, I don't think that push polls come from pollsters. I think they come from campaign operatives. I think they come from, from interest organizations, right? So the idea behind a push poll is to present a question to a respondent to get a particular response or to actually persuade them in a direction for future actions, for voting. Did you know that, you know, Susan Collins, blah, blah, blah. Oh, gosh, I didn't know. It must be a legitimate position if a pollster is saying it to me. So the idea uh, behind push polls is to actually um, be biased, to move the respondent in the direction. Um, that's not what pollsters do. That's what campaign activists do. And it's too bad, it's unfortunate they're confused. But it does happen. It is uh, it is something we see in politics quite often. Uh, again, uh, that's uh, that's not what uh, reputable pollsters do. Why why are there said to be Republican pollsters and Democratic pollsters? Like, why isn't it sort of nonpartisan if it's truly credible, Dan? Well, I think that often comes from the candidates that they've historically worked for. Right. So candidates will often often hire pollsters to keep their finger on the campaign sort of in a sort of secretive way. 
Um, if they develop a reputation for working for one side of the aisle, um, they're better known as a Republican or Democratic pollster. Um, we're seeing that a little bit with media organizations. I, I think that's probably unfortunate, and it's it's it, we often don't see dramatic differences between the results. Uh, I think probably more likely what you'd find is that certain media outlets wouldn't report their polling results if it doesn't is not consistent where they want to be. Um, if Ashley's got a take on that, yeah, I'd be curious, Ashley. I mean. Do, do Democratic and Republican pollsters, like, is there a slant there? Are they looking for a particularly favorable result for their candidates or what? You know, I, I think it's evolved into campaign polling being a very different beast from either academic polling or polling, nonpartisan polling and for research purposes, like um, a number of media outlets that are doing an exceptional job of polling. I think when we when we look at campaign pollsters, you know, the and, and Dan had alluded to this, usually their point is to not only produce results to see where they are in the race, but if they do publish results or leak results, they obviously want those results to look good for their candidate. And in order to do that, a lot of times campaign pollsters will prime or frame respondents to get to a certain result that they like. So, you know, I always kind of tongue in cheek say, um, and this is an extreme case, but campaign pollsters will do things. And, and, you know, Dan brought up the great point of push polls. This is sometimes not even in a push poll. You know, we know the very famous push poll of uh, McCain and the primaries that the Bush campaign had launched um, way back when uh, in terms of, of having an illegitimate child. And but But even when we're not talking push polls, you know, a, a campaign poster could very easily craft the the questionnaire of a survey to say something like, you know, um, if you found out that the opponent um, hates puppies and rainbows and babies, you know, how does that make you feel? Would you be more or less likely? And so they would they would go through a series of items to try to move that support around. And sometimes you know, they may measure support at the beginning and then ask a bunch of items and measure support at the end. But there are clear intentions with campaign polling. Like I said, a lot of the the true what are the numbers type of polling that usually will stay internal to a campaign. But, you know, because especially in this era of hyperpartisanship, um, it's become a real divide of Republican versus Democratic pollsters on, on each side and all of them divided against a nonpartisan world of polling and very even down to the type of modes that are used and the type of samples that are used a large large difference and that's why we even do see differences in the results between those that are leaked or publicized by a campaign versus those done by a, a media outlet or you know an, an academic institution and dan like our our campaigns use are campaigns not public interest polling, but campaigns using polling to sort of micro target? I mean, by that, you know, finding very, very small segments to whom particular messages are more effective and targeting particular messages rather than having the same story that they're telling to the entire voting populace. Well, you've got that right, Anne. You're, you're. I can see you've been an activist. You understand the <laughs> the importance of microtar. Yes. So the idea is uh, to 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 zero in on what 
activates what motivates different groups of voters. If you could, you try to figure out what 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 motivates every voter, each voter. So the trick is to merge uh, census, often census-based demographic information with your polling information. So if in your polling, for example, you find that you know unmarried women, professional women under 35 believe such and such on a given issue or on a di different candidate, you'd use that information to target those women throughout the district and knowing where they are. So yes, to get smaller and smaller is the idea to merge uh, demographic information with opinion-based information. Which sounds um, kind of divisive. I'm sorry to say, maybe I'm making a leap here. Well, it's an old story. It's just gotten more and more sophisticated, right? So as yeah. the data gets ever finer, and actually there are other ways of garnering information about particular voters than, than just polling and census information. There's a whole new world of trying to figure out um, attitudes and opinions based upon social media posts. Yeah. Yep. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Ashley Koning, Assistant Research Professor and Director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and also with us, Dan Shea, Chair and Professor of Government at Colby College. This program was pre-recorded on June 12th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. I want to talk in the final segment today about how to be better consumers. We've sort of talked about campaign polling and public um, issue polling. And I want to talk about what we as consumers can do to be um, better users of polling information. Which should we pay attention to? Which should we maybe not pay attention to? And I hope that you'll maybe in this segment give us some tips about who are the good pollsters that we can rely on or who are the good aggregators of polling that we can rely on and which ones should we maybe not pay so so much attention to. So Ashley, you go, go first. What would be your tips to us on how to be better consumers? I mean, of course, follow the Rutgers Eagleton poll. Um, <laughs> so we, we've, we've been around for five decades. So uh, no, we have a neat little legacy. We were actually the first, um, the, the first university-based statewide public polling operation and, and uh, inspired a, a number of others that have gone across the country. But that being said, I would say certainly, you know, academic institutions are incredibly trustworthy when it comes to who to trust. I think... Um, media outlets, all, all of the major media outlets have incredibly trustworthy polling units. Um, Pew Research is, you know, the, the god of polling. They should, and, and Gallup right along with them. I think those are two huge entities that can always be trusted. Um, there are a lot of kind of polling aggregation sites nowadays. There's Real Clear Politics, there's 538. Um, you know, these sites can give a good indication about who to follow. Also, the New York Times has the upshot and uh, New York Times often partners with um, Siena College, the Siena College uh, Research Institute up in Albany, New York. And so, you know, these are all really noteworthy, really credible polls. Um, in fact, many of the, the big media outlets, including your New York Times and Siena, have been doing a lot of the statewide polling to make up for that deficit we talked about previously in terms of um, 
budget and frequency or the, the lack of budget and frequency for so many in individual states or the complete lack of organizations polling in those states. And so I would say all of these big names are incredibly trust, trustworthy. These data aggregation sites sometimes even rate the pollsters, although I think there are some inherent issues with, with their ratings. But I would say, you know, just kind of be always be skeptical, always be cautious, like a good social scientist would be when looking at poll results, usually more often than not, these are the names we can trust. You know, always look for that sample size, that margin of error, uh, who is conducting the poll and how they're asking the questions. If, if the questions are not divulged, um, you know, we, if we don't know the questions, we really don't know anything about the results. Questions have such an impact on how people answer that that is, you know, a primary thing, how the questions were asked, the order in which the questions were asked, those are big, big things that any poll consumer should try to find out. If there's not a link to the questions or a link to more information about the poll, it's probably a pretty sketchy poll. Um, so, you know, the more information, the better, the more transparency, the better. Dan, I can see where a pollster would have to provide that kind of transparency in order to be, be credible. Like if they're not providing, there's something to hide. But as a regular ordinary consumer not a social scientist like i'm not gonna dig into that on every single poll like what what would you say in terms of advice what are the the shortcuts or the rules of thumb that people can use in deciding how to how to use and uh, reflect on polling that they might see in the press well it's hard it's difficult because we want a quick and easy answer we want to run to you know, the sample size, you know, we want to run to the margin of error. Um, but that's often, as Ashley alluded to, that's often not where the bias exists. The bias often exists in the question wording and the order of the questions, right? Um, so I do think sample size is important. Um, just as a rule of thumb, it's, it kind of depends, and all pollsters kind of cringe at giving any real numbers, but anything that's less than 600, uh, 5 and 600 is pretty darn tiny. That's a margin of error of about four and a half, five. Look for polls as best you can that, that are over uh, seven or 800, maybe 1,000 or 1,200. They're better, they're stronger, um, but really... Um, the, the reputation of the organization uh, is very important um, and they're going to do the best they can to, to ask unbiased questions. And they will also be the ones that provide this information, even if you don't go and get it. The fact that they'll often academic institutions will give this information. So when we released our polling data on the Gideon uh, and Biden stuff, we released all our questions every time all our data, we we released what's called a top line, which is a cross tabulation of numerous demographic variables with every single one of our questions to be as transparent as possible. Now, did folks come and get that? No, not a lot. But by knowing that we were going to do that, we were more careful. So I think knowing those organizations like Pew, for example, you can get a look at every single question that Pew asked. You can look at all their data. Because they're going to do that, they're going to be very careful about each of their questions. They're not going to do sloppy questions when the rest of the world can see. So I think Ashley's points about transparency is really important. 
So if reputation is the thing, Dan, and, and Ashley kind of did name some names, would you like to call out a few that our listeners can pretty much rely on? Well, Ashley hit most of them. The other one that I would probably add is, um, uh, oh gosh, in the Hudson, Hudson River Valley, not just Siena, but uh, New York Times. Oh gosh, I can't remember. Can you remember at what he's talking about, Ashley? Uh, Dan, can you, who, who, oh, that's, there's the New York Times oftentimes, uh, um, oh, yeah, I, I had mentioned them, Siena up in Albany. They, they do, oh, and then um, the other one down south with a good organization, oh, Marist, Marist, that's graduate school buddy was provost down there, and I can't remember Marist. Uh oh, that's trouble. So, yeah, um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so Marist has done a lot of good points. And by the way, Rutgers is great. We use Rutgers uh, for a lot of our research. We've done it for the for years and years and years. Very reputable organization that Ashley is working with. Do media analysts look into this stuff? Like, can we count on, I, I like you say, the Upshot or Five Thirty Eight to actually have done this work and um, and tell us who's good or not? Dan first, then Ashley. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they they actually will. They actually are pretty careful about that. Um, that's sort of egg on their face if they're if they're posting results that aren't aren't good. So we had to sort of justify our sample size and our instruments and our our methods on how we were we were reaching out to to respondents to get some of these organizations. To, to to include our our information, say 538.com. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ashley, go ahead. I know you had something to say. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think looking at those data journalism sites are really helpful. And and um I would say that that a lot more reporters are catching on and and you know have skilled journalists that are in this area and know the right questions to ask. But unfortunately again, it's just such a massive news hole that needs to be filled that um it gets to be, you know, it gets to be hard to to keep somebody on track. But I, I, I hope the conversation grows more in terms of the educational component that's needed. Is there a Snopes for pollsters? Uh, the New York Times does a good bit, I think, right? Mm -hmm. and, um... and then one last sort of yes or no question. If people are contacted to participate in one of these polls, should they do it? Sometimes, never? Depends. Well, if it's from an academic institution, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do it. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. We've done a lot of text to web, and I've had a number of respondents contact me to make sure that the survey is legitimate. So, you know, I would say if if you think this is from a credible source, if you think it's legitimate, if there's a number you can call or an email address that you can contact to make sure it's legitimate, please do the polls. Please pick up the phone when we call you because you know we need you. It's, it's, you are an important part of our process and it's, you know, it makes you an important part of, of the, of the political process. It, it does, you know, help you're contributing to research and important uh, results on public sentiment. And then should we just like ignore the horse race polling or what? I think that's a hard call. Go ahead, Dan. Well, it's a snapshot in time. It's often pretty close, but it's not the same. It's not the same as voters turning out. Um, of course, you pay close attention if you're way ahead in the polls. If you're way behind, you don't pay any attention. I think that's the answer, right? 
Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah, or else you uh, you yell at the pollster and, and uh, <laughs> say, why did you put me behind? Even though that's not how it works. You know, I, I think uh, Pew and Gallup and others have gotten out of the horse race polling for precisely the reasons we discussed. And I think that's a pretty important thing to mention and to recognize that that some of the biggest uh, names in polling are no longer trying to contribute to it. So I, I don't know if we know what the answer is. I think there are polls actively like New York Times Siena and like ABC Washington Post that are actively trying to contribute to a better pre-election polling landscape. Um, and so I, I don't, again, I don't know if we need to declare, you know, uh, pre-election polling's death yet or, or, you know, throw it out the window, but I think we need to understand more about what it should and should not be used for. All right, we're running out of time this afternoon. I want to give you each just a, a quick minute to wrap it up. Um, Dan, just a few last thoughts for our listeners. Pol polling can help the public express their views in a more holistic, fuller way. It can be an important tool for decision makers. We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've got to be careful about how they're done. Um, but it can be a very important democratic tool. Ashley? Yeah, I would just echo Dan's sentiment. I mean, um, I, I think it has real value in the small D democratic process. And I think, you know, it's a time of uncertainty and it's a time of change, certainly within the industry. But I think the only constant is change. And so, of course, you know, the industry is going to keep growing and adapting and, and there are incredible minds that are working on it, uh, you know, in terms of what what our next steps are when it comes to polling. But I would say, you know, just be a good poll consumer, try to educate yourself, try to participate in the polling process whenever asked. Um, and, and, you know, try to realize that that this is a really important tool to especially judge those issues that never get their day at the ballot box. And we've seen time and time again, how crucial results like that for things like same-sex marriage and abortion have been in the trajectory of history. Hey, that's our show for today. Thank you to our guests this afternoon, Ashley Koning, Assistant Research Professor and Director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling at the Eagleton Institute of Politics, Rutgers, the State U University of New Jersey, and to Dan Shea, Chair and Professor of Government at Colby College. Dan and his co-author, Nick Jacobs, have a book coming out this fall titled The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFN, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you next month. <laughs>